can please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles with me again to Isaiah 64. I have the passage for you on the insert. This is part of a prayer that Isaiah is praying. It's toward the end of this prophecy, as you know. We've been uh, working through this book for a couple years now, and we are coming to the end. And Isaiah is a different person at the end of this prophecy compared to where he was at the beginning when he met God. Um, And this prayer is is spoken like a a pastor of the people. Um, He's speaking for himself. He's speaking for those who believe. But he's asking for God's mercy to be upon the whole of the people, many of which have been in active rebellion for a long time. That's why they were finding themselves under the hand of God's discipline as Babylon started to come closer to them. The full record of Babylon's invasion happens in Jeremiah some years later. But this prayer starts to look to the future, seeing what is inevitable. They're mired in sin and needed God's repentance. And so this prayer contains that kind of appeal. Here as I read God's word, I'll read from verse 1 down to verse 12. This is chapter 64 of Isaiah. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts For those who wait for him, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, your word transforms us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We read and we study with expectation that you will move among us and in our lives. Thank you for the word and especially the book of Isaiah. As we come to the last chapters, please help us to understand what is being said. And please change us by this revealed truth. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you know, and as I've mentioned, we've been working through the book of Isaiah for over two years. And each year at the beginning of the year, I'll give you a memory verse from Isaiah. Well, the first Sunday I preached, 
in the new year, I forgot to give you that verse. And there was an immediate backlash. I was accosted in the narthex by some of our more vocal members. And so now I'm coming with you with two verses to make up for the fact that I didn't give you one. It's the first two verses of chapter 64. Just look there momentarily. We'll get into the text in a moment, but for now, just be aware, our memory verse for 2018 is, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. That's our assignment for the year. There should be other verses you commit to memory, but this will be the one as a congregation you'll be reminded of, especially in your home fellowship groups. It'll always be on the notes in the bottom to remember this passage. Now, another bit of preface before we get into this passage. We're coming to the end of Isaiah, and I don't know what your exposure to the, prophet, the prophetic books uh, was before we walk through this long book of prophecy. I'm sure many of you, like me, uh, knew portions of the different prophetic books, especially Isaiah, that we just remember, either Christmas time or, or some beautiful encouragement we had in difficulty. We can find passages out of the prophets like this. But I hope our walk through the Bible here, the walk through Isaiah, thinking of the timeline, the background, the original audience, how it is fulfilled through Christ, who's forecasted there. I hope that picture gives you a better appreciation for really how profound the message of the prophets are. A good portion of the Old Testament is prophetic writing like this. A good portion happens against this kind of backdrop, where God's disciplining, but he's, through the prophet, reminding them that they... they, should be called to repentance and remind them that God will never forget his covenant. His grace is always there for those who believe. So now that you know that, uh, read ahead in these prophetical books. Go to Jeremiah. Look at Obadiah. Look at Habakkuk. Don't be intimidated by these powerful books of Scripture now that you know a bit of how to interpret them. Now, one more thing. Before you uh, head off in that direction, remember three things that will help you interpret the prophetic books, and especially what we're going to study this morning and have been studying. First, and this, these are principles you might say. First, the prophets typically re- will reveal something about God and what he is like. They won't always tell you to go do something. I mean, repent. But sometimes they'll just describe God and his workings. And that on its own can be very profitable for the people of God. I could just read a passage, say just a few things, and we could go out of here compelled in a different way. Because our picture of God has become a little clearer because truth is revealed. It's not what we imagine God to be or what some person imagines God to be. It's what the scripture says God is. And the prophets do this over and over and over again. So the first level, sometimes you just need to read the prophetic passage. You don't have to try to figure out every nuance or maybe what it's trying to tell you to do. It may not be telling you to do anything except for think right. Because when we have a clearer picture of who God is, that helps us with the whole of our life and navigating this life and understanding the rest of what Scripture says. So that's principle number one. Sometimes it's just a display of who God is, and that can be enough. Other times, there will be references to things we understand immediately. Like when it says that our good works are like filthy rags or polluted garments. We know what that means. That hits us. It makes us think about our sin. It might give us some direction in the prophets, too. It's not like it's devoid of commandments. I don't mean to say that. But sometimes there are portions that don't have that. Sometimes there are. The third principle to think of has to do with the angle the writer is coming from. What I mean is we've come to know Isaiah a little bit. I think that um, if you went to heaven right now, and assuming God didn't give you some special immediate knowledge of who Isaiah was, 
you'd be able to go up to Isaiah and say, I think I follow where you're going with this. I mean, it's a 40-year ministry you had, and I read through it. We studied your book in church, went through it, and kind of saw the ups and downs of the nation, how things happened with the northern kingdom, and how Hezekiah, through Hezekiah, he, he rescued you from the, from the Assyrians. But eventually, they fil- the people still fell into discipline, but not before you told them the gospel. You told them that Jesus would come, the faithful Israelite, the only one, and on their behalf, take all their punishment and take their sins away, and he would reign again someday. You told them all that. And by the end of your life, you were appealing on behalf of all the people, even though Babylon was knocking on your door, you are appealing to God that he would come visit. So from the angle of the prophet, we learn a little bit about how we should approach God, what our attitude should be towards God, what priorities we pray for. Now, I know that's a long preface, but we're coming to the end of Isaiah, and I don't want anybody to chicken out of the prophetic books after we're done. You can get into these books and understand with great depth what they're saying. They're valuable to Christians because we see them through the lens of Christ and so much of it is directly applicable. But all of us will get a clear picture of who our God is as we study these passages. Now, with that in mind, let's come back to this prayer of Isaiah. I'm backing up a little bit from where I was just to keep going forward. Chapter 64 we'll look at in its entirety. This is the last part, the last two-thirds, really, of the prayer that starts in chapter 63. And right away we gather what this prayer, this talking to God is all about, this calling out to God. Calling to God for rescue. Calling to God, remember, is not just saying, God, come fix this immediate problem. When you call to God, you are calling your God, the God of the universe, to come and visit your situation. Uh, We may say, Lord, just fix this problem I have immediately, but understand, child of God, if you call your father into this, he's going to look at it all. And that's the understanding that Isaiah comes with, and that's okay to Isaiah. Because he knows there's a need for purification here. Even among the people of God. They're oppressed from without and they're struggling from within. God, come visit. And if you visit, then I know things will not be the same. Calling to God for rescue or to visit our situation. What we see displayed here is the requirement of a humble honesty. And that humble honesty must be depended upon or leaning upon the grace of God that has been revealed to us. So we know that he has moved to make us his children. It's from that position we come with our cry for him to come visit our situation. We can see that vividly displayed in the opening verses here. Look at verses one and two. These are the two memory verses that I just mentioned. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, as I mentioned last time that some commentators say this O word is a, is a, key, under, a key to understanding the urgency of this passage. It might be the most important word in the whole chapter because it shows expect, uh, expectation. Oh, if you were here, it would not be the same. If you came and visited, Lord, our situation would be different. Maybe it wouldn't look like we say it would look, but it would sure look different than it does. Oh, it's not just expectation, though. There's something more there. It's a word that longs for his visitation. We know if you were here, it would be different. Lord, we long for you to visit this situation. Now, why are we calling God to visit our situation? This is from the angle of the prophet. There's two things that he draws our attention to. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. You will see, or excuse me, verse 2. When fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. So he knows what he's asking for. He's asking for the presence of God like fire to come. That will burn impurities. That will bring purification. 
but it will also pronounce something to those who are watching that God is real. This is not one of those fake gods that the pagan nations were forming into idols. This is the real God. And so bring your fire, purify, and display. I mean, that's what you're calling God to do. Now, this is an extreme circumstance, but really, if you think about it, when we pray and ask God to visit our situation, ultimately, we want him to draw us closer to him, to be more like him. And we know we can't do it on our own. He has to visit us. We also want this for the purpose of others knowing and seeing God is true, God is real. So this is a bigger situation than we might find ourselves in personally, but it comes down to the same kind of thing. Interestingly, um, Isaiah, of all the prophets, loves the metaphor of fire and heat the most. Um, Back in chapter 4, when we just started the book, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. He'll bring his presence to the people of God. Then, of course, in Isaiah 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah speaking, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, his presence and purification going on. In Isaiah 10, and there are many other examples, but Isaiah 10, therefore the Lord God of hosts will send a wasting sickness among the stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. So when the presence of God comes, there's a purification that occurs. But the purification has a purpose, the second part of verse 2, to make your name known to your adversaries or your enemies, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Remember, the purpose is to display that God is real. He is true. But remember this. You weren't always God's friend. You weren't always God's child. Now, some of you don't remember when it is that God brought you and his family. Praise God for that. But speaking on the whole, all of us at some point were estranged from God. In fact, it says in the book of Romans, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We are enemies, but now through Christ we're reconciled. So when we pray for God to bring purity or to come visit our situation, we want him, yes, to display to his enemies that he's real. But like us, we also pray for and hope that his enemies, that some of them anyways, would come to be his children through his visitation, even his visitation of us and whatever it is that he does in purifying his people. Verses 3 and 4 are like a profession of faith and about Yahweh in the truth of who God really is. Isaiah repeats these words. Look at verse 3. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Baal didn't help out his people. Dagon didn't help his people. But you helped us, and you did it in a way we couldn't imagine. I mean, I know for us, because we are so familiar with the story, and it's so repeated in the Old Testament, but imagine if you were one of the Israelites who doesn't know a day when you weren't a slave, and here you are in Egypt, and somehow, amazingly, you are released from Egypt. And even those were amazing things that happened to release you. Now you're running for your life. There's two million of you. You're at the back of the, the group, so you're not up close to hear what the prophets are saying, and you come up against the Red Sea, and you look behind you, and there is the greatest army on earth at that point, equipped with chariots that you can't outrun, and now you're facing the Red Sea. What would God do? 
how could he save us? And he parts the sea. Verse 3. When you did awesome things, literally fearful things, scary things, big things, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. One recurring theme here in this mature prophet Isaiah is no attempt to take any kind of credit for themselves. In other words, there's no attempt to say, we did some things, so now you had to come, you had to do that, you had to rescue us. There's no hint of that in this prayer. So he's crying out for God's visitation, and he wants God to bring purity and to display his awesome glory. You know, as one commentator said, what does God's work in the past teach us? It doesn't teach us that he always does things the same way. No, it teaches us how surprising he is. So when we call for him, we cry out to him to come visit our situation, it will be surprising often what he does. And we see that from here. Notice the last phrase there in verse 4, please, where it says, No eye has seen a God besides, besides you who acts for those who wait for him. In the Old Testament, there are different phrases that are used for faith. That is, they're synonymous with the idea of trusting in God, believing on God, resting in God and his promises. This is one of them. Those who wait for him. They wait because they know he'll come. Who acts for those who wait for him. Um, There are several other usages of, of phrases that mean faith. People who have faith in God. Earlier in chapter 63, it spoke of those who feared God, the fear of God. That's, that's you believe in God. You believe he's true. You believe what he says is right. Here, those who wait for him. But in the next verse, those who remember you. In verse 7 of the passage before us, those who call upon your name. Verse 7 again, those who take hold of you. These are all terms uh, for faith. That instrument that God uses to bring us to salvation through his son, ultimately. But it takes believing in God's promises. And that leads us in to the next stanza of the prayer, starting at verse 5. When we pray, when we call out to God for his visitation, we do so by faith. We do it believing. That's what it means by heartfelt. They pray with heartfelt, honest confession. No hiding anything coming here. It's going to be exactly what's true. We're to pray with faith and honesty about our sinful situation We're to pray with trust in God and complete candor about our struggle with sin. Don't hold anything back. When I was growing up, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and one of the things you're supposed to do on a regular basis is go say confession to a priest. Manifold problems with that, that's a separate sermon series. But the point being here is that I would go into Father Schneider, and I would tell him, and that's really his name, I went in and told him, uh, my sins. But I remember one occasion where I'd lied to my parents or my parents or my relatives about how many goals I scored in a soccer game. I told them that I scored three goals, but I didn't. Now, here's the thing. I didn't score any goals. But I went to Father Schneider and said, you know what? I lied to my parents. I told them I scored three goals. I only scored one. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? Okay. God's not Father Schneider. So you can't hide stuff from him. So don't try. That's silly. We laugh at that. But like we do it all the time in subtle ways about how we what we tell people, half-truths, spin things, so forth. None of that works with God, so don't even bother with it. See what Isaiah does here. He just says it in, in the most vulgar detail of how sinful we are. And this honesty that he comes to God with is the basis. I mean, it's, it's, what's, it's what God gives us so that we can lay hold of the remedy, who is Christ. 
Now remember, Isaiah has covered this in his prophetic ministry. It's not like this is foreign. We just have it much clearer because of the fulfillment we have seen in Christ and we have recorded for us in Christ. But notice now starting at verse 5. Verse 5 is two parts. There's the ideal and then there is the reality. The ideal. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Now in a minute we're going to find out we can't work righteousness. So this is the ideal he's painting. You meet with him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we, even be, shall we be saved at all, is what he's saying. Now what does it mean? This has given the linguist um, some fits. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. This has reference to the reality of the many times God had disciplined them holding out the offer of deliverance and they kept passing. He would bring discipline and they would, they would shirk that discipline. They would shun that discipline. Remember when the northern kingdom was taken captive? The whole of the south, the kingdom of Judah, is watching the north uh, succumb to Assyria. And they know that will be their fate also. God shows his displeasure with the north by the discipline he exacts and it's supposed to uh, tell the south what they should do different. And for a short time, they changed their behavior. Or they changed their devotion, if you will. But still, even though God showed that anger, they went on sinning. And they find themselves at this point, just like the northern kingdom in so many ways. Behold, you are angry, and we sin more. We kept sinning. We sin. In our sins, we have been a long time, Isaiah says. He's saying we, speaking on behalf of the nation, the people, the covenant people. Shall we be saved it's a recognition that they don't deserve to be saved. He's totally acknowledging that the sin that they have is too great. It should not, they should not expect that God would save them. Verse 6. It gets even more vivid. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This, this, is, this is an important introduction to a, 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 I won't say essential, but I will say a very, 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 very important truth for Christians to grab hold of, to understand what their good works are worth. We have all become like one who is unclean. That's a first statement about ceremonial uncleanliness. They can't enter into the temple in this way. They can't enter into worship or into God's presence while they're unclean. And in particular, this is reference to those who had leprosy, uh, the worst kind of uncleanness, they had no hope to ever enter the presence of God. There was no amount of sacrifices a leper could do. And this is the kind of idea. We have all become like one who is unclean. That's all of us. None of us escaped that. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If you have a study Bible, you know what that polluted garment is. I won't repeat it. The NIV says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, I know some of your Christians are thinking to yourself, well, I'm a Christian now. So hold on. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Let's get there. The New Century Version. All of us are dirty with sin. All the right things we have done are like filthy pieces of cloth. This is a reminder about our good works. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. None of anything you have ever done can make you right with God. The thing you think is the best thing you've ever done is a filthy rag to God. You are only righteous before God 
because of the righteousness of Christ accomplished on our behalf and be held by faith in him. That's the only righteousness you have. That's all. There is no mercy with God except through the righteousness of Christ. It's not the good stuff you do, the money you gave, the prayer you prayed, how much you did your devotions. It doesn't matter towards merit. It doesn't count for anything. It doesn't get you saved. Only Christ in his righteousness makes you righteous. So when God looks at you, he doesn't look at the bunch of good things you did this week. He looks at Jesus. Now, Christians, what about our good works now? Same thing. The difference, though, is immense. Now in Christ, we are living out the good works he's given to us beforehand through Christ. They're not for merit. They're not so we gain something. It's not so God loves us more. It's so God can display his transforming power of the gospel through us. That's what good works mean now. Some people live life like this. I had a good week with my devotions. I was, got along well with my wife or my children this week, so I feel a little better. I think God loves me more. They don't say it out loud, but they think God loves them a little more because they had a good week. I had a terrible week. I lost my temper. I did this and that. God doesn't love me. No, none of that's true. God loves you fully in the work of Christ. He loves you completely. And the conviction you feel is in relationship to the fact that you know you're his child and you haven't lived up to what he saved you from. I mean, that's important. That's conviction. That, that's valuable in our life. But don't miss this. The reason you are acceptable to God is because of the righteousness of Christ and his righteousness alone credited to your account because of faith. This is the whole teaching of Scripture, and it's laid bare here by Isaiah, when after all this time, 40 plus years of ministry, there's this reality that is set in by God's revelation. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Paul writes with this in his mind to Titus, who is a pastor in Crete. It makes sense that he wants a pastor to get this straight. I mean, if a pastor can't get this straight, they really shouldn't be a pastor. It's too important for the people of God to know this. And so he tells Titus in chapter 3, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, made right, By his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Of course, to the Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. No one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a wonderful song uh, written by the Sovereign Grace Organization. I wish I could read every verse to you, but the one that really has gripped me recently, no separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him. And he alone can give me rest. 
And this is what is the sentiment of the prophet as he declares the sin of the people, the sin of himself. In verse 6, the second part, we all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We are completely at your disposal, God. We cannot save ourselves. This is our situation. We acknowledge it. We're like a crumpled up old leaf that's just barely hanging on to the tree out there. It's dead. It's going to fall down and our iniquities are going to wipe it away and no one will even care it was ever around. Lord, that's heartfelt, honest confession. Honesty about our spiritual inability, our spiritual deadness. And here's the thing. Admitting we're spiritually dead, this is, this is, this is where it's, means we must be made alive. A dead person can't even know they're dead. You see, God gives you awareness. Even repentance is a gift of God. The ability to even say that this is true of us means God has to have done his work. And that's what's happening with the prophet here on display for us. And this is where it is rooted in the grace of God. In fact, everything that he says is from the angle of his being saved by God's grace. Earlier in chapter 63, verse 16, for you are our father. Even though they felt like orphans based on what was happening, he says, you are our father. Now we come down to verse 8 and we see how this prayer is all based on an appeal to God's grace, God's gracious commitment to save a people for himself. Verse 8, but now, O Lord, this is, but now comes right after this confession of sin. But now, O Lord, you are our father. Lord, we've confessed it all, but we remember you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We lay it down. No more trying to make ourselves right. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. We're in worse shape than we were before. You are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. What a different place the prophet comes from now compared to where the people were earlier on in this book. What a place for us to see We belong to you, God, by adoption. We submit ourselves to your sovereignty. Verse 9, be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not the, iniquity, not the iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Now he's appealing to the wide group of the, who fall under the, you know, the, the umbrella of the covenant of God's grace. But many under that umbrella weren't embracing God's salvation as it was revealed by Isaiah to come through the Messiah. So he's, on behalf of it, he's saying, remember your people. We need your grace. There are people here that don't know your grace still. Lord, shower that grace upon us. I mean, he recognizes it already, so it's clear the work of God's grace is going on in him. But there are people that, that it, it has not gone on in. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. So by showering repentance onto his people, into his people, um, they would become... Uh, that display of God's grace that they were meant to be. The cry for God's visitation is rooted in a knowledge of God's covenant commitment, his grace that has already been shown to them. It is an appeal to God's grace. Verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. Verse 9, the second part, behold, please look, we are all your people. And now verse 10 and verse 11, another couple passages that get the scholars talking. What does this mean? Is he looking ahead to when the temple will be trampled? Because Jeremiah, which happens several years after this, records that. How can Isaiah know of this? The liberal scholars who want to always say every miracle predicted in the Bible must have been written after it actually happened. They couldn't really look ahead. But we've already seen enough in Isaiah to show how God has given him this prophetic vision. So we can understand that 
First of all, there were uh, intrusions into Israel during Isaiah's time by the Babylonians. The Babylonians ruled the area. They just did not completely uh, subjugated the land of Israel yet. But they were coming in. They were, there was a tax. There were pillages uh, of the temple, things that were stolen, things that were burned. But it's really a picture of what would finally happen to the temple. And this is causing Isaiah and the people to lament how things have gone. Verse 10, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. I mean, this place that once marked the strength of God's people now is in desolation. Verse 11, our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. He sees this as an inevitable outcome for the discipline of God upon them. It's coming. Lord, do you see what this is displaying? Do you hear our cry? Do you hear our prayer? Verse 12, as it concludes, will you restrain yourself at these things? Having heard all this, Lord, will you hold back from us? O Lord, will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? So Isaiah appeals to God's historical favor shown to his people. Isaiah appeals to God's covenant of grace. He's calling God to remember his covenant. The basis for this prayer isn't a promise on the part of the people that they will change. If you, God, if you, if you get me out of this, I'll change. Don't ever pray that. No, you won't. Not without God's help. What you should pray for is change. Lord, if you just do this for me, then, then, then I'll be different or I'll believe more. The appeal for God to visit their situation is based on an appeal to God's grace alone. Lord, I don't deserve this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know you are the great and loving God and you are our Father. On that basis, will you visit our situation? And will you bring purification? And will you display yourself to everybody? That's what we want. That understanding really does affect all of our prayers. Now pray for all the things that come to your mind. God wants you. He's your Father. He wants you to talk to him about the little stuff. But even the little stuff, we start to think, how does this relate to God's glory, to his display? And it does help us. It, it, it perfects, if you will, the prayers we pray. He's our father. He wants us to come to him. But we as his children want him to receive the glory. Let's close by, together with one voice, repeating our memory verse for 2018, or I should say, our memory verses for 2018. 64, 1 and 2, it's there on your insert. Let's say this together as I lead. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are very grateful, very grateful for your sure word. We are thankful for this revelation about yourself and about us. We agree with this prayer from our forefather Isaiah. We know that our works are like filthy rags, but we also know the righteousness of Christ is ours by your gift of faith. In light of this prayer from Isaiah, please purge any thoughts of righteousness through our own works and renew us in our trust in you. In light of this prayer from Isaiah, 
please consistently give us sensitivity about our sin and our need to be honest in confession. Please use your grace to us in Christ to ignite obedience, obedience in our lives so that the world will know who you are through us, your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The song that we will sing in response is one about prayer, describing prayer, 634. Let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Sweet Hour Prayer as the elders come to prepare the table.